This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. podcast about the books you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name is andrew we're back with another episode you doubted us you shouldn't have <laughs> we told you we'd be here just because we've done it every monday without missing one since like 2015 what a record mean... yeah. hey andrew take a break real quick pat yourself on the back i could hear okay. that that was a good pat yeah <laughs> takes it. a pat no problem um mm-hmm. we're here pat <laughs> Remember that? Remember that? Remember that one? Wow, I think that movie is probably a minefield these days. Mm, yeah, we're back with our literary podcast uh, where we talk about literature. I read a book that I've never read before. I'm going to tell Andrew about it. Um, you have anything else to say about how the show works? No, no, that's pretty. Much, and then you guys listen to it also. Yeah, yeah. I just like to, you know. He's not. Ju- I mean, he's telling me about it, and I'm listening like actively. But you guys can all listen too, yes. and not participate. If you've listened to us every Monday since like 2015, like you could have just taken a nap through those 20 seconds. But like, there might be new listeners, and it's good to welcome them and tell them how this goes. I'll pat yourselves on the back for that too. Hey, by the way, we'll we'll wait. <laughs> all of you out Go there. for it. Good pat, excellent. So this book, the fat woman next door is pregnant by Michel Tremblay. Uh, is a French Canadian novel or a, oh. a Quebecois novel. <laughs> I'm just getting that out of the way up top real fast so I don't have to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to do it again. You could do it again. Um, <laughs> it was recommended to us by one of our Patreon supporters, Margot, um, who is from Montreal, I believe, or at least from Quebec, wrote us mm-hmm. a very lovely note about how she found the podcast, how Andrew liking the book The Sparrow kept her listening. Um, oh, nice. And how we really didn't know that much about Canada, did we? <laughs> we don't and still don't. I've read a bunch about Quebec today to try and learn about this. I'm going to do my best to speak factually about, sure. <laughs> about the things that I read about and then not speak about the things that I didn't read about. Great. But I think I think I have some vague sense of culturally where Michelle and this work come from. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so yeah, we can talk about that. I just want to give a one little quote from Margot here. Um says, I love his novels. Uh he has a way of sailing so easily from Joual, I think is the word for Quebec Quebec slang. Um, yeah, Jules, I think, Jules. is the... When the characters are speaking to each other to a very beautiful French writing prose for descriptions, he also adds a touch of fantasy with the vivid imagination of the characters. I do want to just look at I my... I think you were closer to right, Jules. Jules. I, did, I looked this up and then I forgot. <laughs> I am looking... Uh, I read the translation by Sheila Fishman. I don't know if there are other translations. This is the one that was readily available to me. Um, and this book, I think... Came out in 1978. It's the mm-hmm. first of his Plateau Mont Royal chronicles. Yeah, and every source except one that I found said that this is a six book series, yes. and then one source said it was a four book <laughs> series. But we're gonna go with six. Okay, sure. Yeah, um, and it is based on the neighborhood in Montreal where he grew up, and the big, like raucous multi-generational family that he was a part of i believe the titular uh fat woman in this book is somewhat based on his mom or his experience with his mom Mm -hmm. um what else do we know about monsieur tremblay andrew uh like you said he was born in 1942 um he is a novelist and playwright who is closely associated with the working class of quebec and um, according to the Canadian Theater Encyclopedia website, he is, quote, arguably the most important playwright in the history of the country. Whoa. So let's not mess it up. Oh, my God. Um, he is known for like novels and plays centered on uh, gay and women's issues. He himself is is gay and was um, 
for the first like couple decades of his life, he was he was closeted. And so a lot of what he was writing about, like you mentioned fantasy elements in his books, like some of those fantasy elements were like covers for oh, stuff. Sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, And he's worked to like him and his work have, have helped to establish Quebec as a place like with its own identity. So this is a big thing that is happening sort of mid 20th century in Quebec is starting around 1960. You have this thing called the quiet revolution, the revolution tranquille, (laughs) where the, um, like the English aligned and like Roman Catholic aligned, more conservative government of Quebec is ousted in favor of, uh, this, this more like liberal and Quebec nationalists group. Um, and it sees the rise of, like Quebec as its own thing that is distinct from French, like France and distinct from Canada and distinct from like the English elements of, of the ruling class of the country up, up to that point. Sure. And so, uh, Michel and, uh, Joal and all that stuff is all sort of tied up in this, this attempt to cement like a national identity for Quebec. I saw that he received the, Governor General's Performing Arts Award in 1999, which is one of the highest uh, like arts and culture prizes in Canada, and a bunch of his separatist friends were like, listen, you're going to take that award from the <laughs> Canadian government? Hmm. He's sort of been, over time, a little, I don't want to say wishy-washy, but he has like... He has been a lot of wish, I guess, in some of his public comments on whether he supports like Quebec, like the Quebec separatist movement. Um, he's criticized it for being too narrowly uh, focused on like economic issues mm. instead of cultural issues, sure. though. he, I think he still comes down on the side of supporting it. Ultimately, I, I couldn't find any quotes from him on this more recent than like the late 2000s. This is a fascinating like flash from the past for me because I took a lot of French classes in middle and high school. Forgotten most learn of how, it. Learn, you learn how to kiss? Hey. That, that, that class was <laughs> under the bleachers. Um, <laughs> but uh, the we would always be aware that like Quebec was doing stuff and like maybe mm-hmm. it would just run away one day and be its mm-hmm. own country. But like it never really took in the same way that I think the Scottish question keeps getting asked every few years. I don't know where the current, like how full the tank of gas is on Quebec separatism at this point, but yeah, it's so it's actually, my understanding is that it is not like an active question in the current government for the first time in like a like generation many, or two. Many yeah, decades. Sure. Yeah. Um, so there was a, there was a referendum in the nineties, I believe that came very close. Um, I think it was like 50.5% of Quebec wanted to stay part of Canada and then the rest didn't. And I, that's as close as it's as any like referendum has come to making it official. Okay. Okay. Um, um and then in 2006, the house of commons of Canada, They've passed this uh, symbolic motion recognizing the Quebecois as a nation within a united Canada. (laughs) So basically saying, hey, you guys, we see you. We know what you're doing. But can we just can we just all be Canada together? (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. The term that's another thing I want to mention is the term Quebecois itself like is invented in this like mid-century period where they're trying to establish uh, Quebec's identity. So that's a relatively recent term for people from wow. Quebec. I didn't know yeah. that. Okay. Mm-hmm. You learned something on this podcast, eh? Yeah. So uh Michelle is coming up and creating art in this in this context, and his works are some of the like a lot of uh theater in Quebec up to that point was being like imported from France. Mm. And this is he is like spearheading this movement to for Quebec to make its own art. And his plays are performed like pretty much constantly within the within the province at this at this point. I think it was I don't know what year it was. His first breakthrough play, Les Belles Sœurs. Um, I think that's the beautiful sisters or the pretty sisters. Um, I wouldn't know because he didn't originally allow it to be performed in English <laughs> until after 
uh, the separatist Quebecois government won some elections in 1976. <laughs> yeah. So, yep. uh, but that play um, apparently is about like it, the internal private thoughts and feelings of like 15 working class housewives at, at a party together. And knowing that that was his breakthrough theater work um, actually really informs what this book is up to in that it is, it's very slice of lifey. One of the biggest plot points is that an old lady takes a walk, you know, that kind of book. Yeah, um, I can get behind that kind of slow pace, <laughs> and, sort of anti-thriller, <laughs> I guess. Uh, and then it's it's very much about the internal emotions and internal stories that characters are are telling each other as they are like getting through this one day in May 1942. So, um. He has a very... The book has a style where there are no line breaks for dialogue ever. Mm -hmm. It it reads like a real relaxed Faulkner to me. Like, it's not like run-on sentences, but it is walls of text in a Pink Floyd-style way, you know? Walls of sound. William Faulkner. But it it can make... (laughs) working your way through the text a little difficult i wouldn't be surprised if folks had ever bounced off this book for that reason um mm-hmm. i have to keep talking about the book andrew but we should probably take a quick break first and then we'll do more of this podcast okay. here sounds great Greg, we've been doing some promotion of other book podcasts mm. on our book podcast lately, and I want to tell you about another one, if that's okay with Please you. Please do. I'm up for it. All right. I want to tell you about a podcast called The History of Literature. It's a show that covers everything from the life and works of literary giants like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky to lighthearted topics like Best of the Bard, Shakespeare's Greatest Lines, and Overrated! Exclamation point! The books you don't need to read. <laughs> that sounds very helpful, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, our podcast would be very short yes if we would just be like you don't need to read this one bye screw this one we're taking a week off <laughs> bye um over the past five years host jack wilson and his guests have explored everything from gilgamesh to gogol seeking out the most unusual compelling and inspiring stories from the world of literature at its heart the history of literature podcast is a celebration of what we love about literature and life and it will appeal to anyone who enjoys passionate intelligent and unpretentious conversations about the beauty and importance of of great books. Uh, previous and forthcoming episodes of the show feature guests such as Tom Parada, Amanda Stern, and Tobias Wolf. Uh, new episodes of the History of Literature run every Monday and Thursday on the Podglomerate Network, and you can listen today by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this show. So, there you go. Thanks for telling me about the History of Literature. You're welcome. I'm happy to do it. Okay, Andrew. Okay, Craig. We're going to talk about this book now, if that's okay with you. Fine. Buckle up. Um, it's a wild <laughs> one. It's not a wild one. It's a fun one, though. Um, as we alluded to earlier, it takes place in Montreal, Quebec, uh, the hometown of our author, um, set around when he was growing up. Um, I think... It is set in the year of his birth, but you can look at a couple of the kids in this book and see probably different portions of his personality. I don't know enough about Monsieur. You haven't Trump. met him, yeah. And I, <laughs> like, I, you know? I don't. I actually couldn't find in a, in any of the short biographies that I read like how many siblings he does or does not have. I do know that he grew up in that like big multi generational home that I talked about earlier, which is a big part of this book. Yeah, all the stuff I could find about him was like overwhelmingly focused on his like the work itself and yes. then to a lesser extent like some of his political views and like the cultural background but very little on like he, him, what, he I don't himself. know like what kind of car he owns or like any of the personal <laughs> stuff like yeah. if he has a dog That's true. I don't know. Yeah. Um and the book opens with a couple of ladies out side of their house on their balcony on their porch it's a little unclear on this street in montreal and they are knitting booties they are knitting some baby booties Mm -hmm. and you get a whiff of the dialogue pretty early on 
um, at how like conversational it is. It's you know not often you can sit outside on the second of May. Mm, yes, this is the first time I think. Come on, you're kidding. What about? That's true. You're right. I remember. And it's like very. Di- <laughs> it's play dialogue-y in the way that it's like mm-hmm. he's very comfortable having the characters be very informal, um, and it kind of really rolling off the tongue. Um, I wanted to ask before we get too much further into it, like the the French dialect is like a big part of the the book when it's in its original language. Is there any kind of like translator's note or anything that that you saw that talked about like the difficulties of preserving that like unique not dialect in English or is, not at yeah. all? Okay, cool. There are some Great. words that are not translated that are clearly slang. Clearly, some sort of cursing that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but aside from that, I I personally don't feel as an English reader that I had a great amount of access to that vibe, which okay. apparently is is huge benefit of reading it in French. Um, <laughs> and you do not find this out at the beginning of the book. It is a it is a kind of low level mystery. The closest thing that this book has to a mystery is that these ladies doing this knitting um rose violette and mauve uh and their mother florence are some sort of greek fates like they are magical ladies who've been living next to this family for decades you hear them talk about when you know some of the oldest members in the family had their kids and stuff and later in the book, it becomes clear that some of the characters can't, most of the characters can't even see that these people exist and that there's actually just an empty house next to them on their street. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this like dash of magical realism because the, the book feels pretty grounded actually um, in a naturalism that this little like touch of magic elevates. They do later in the book like, Sort of, sort of in the in the I don't know the, the trope you might be familiar with Andrew is like the fates like cutting a thread and then someone dies like that kind of like you're I'm not familiar with that but it sounds neat neat okay cool it sounds real um it, there's like a version of that where they decide to knit for one character instead of another when you when you are to understand that the latter character dies got it, um, got it, got we it. check in with them a couple of times but they are our intro to hey there's this woman next door. She is overweight, she is pregnant, and there's a bunch of people living in that house. And then for a few chapters, in as much as they are chapters, they're mostly just perspective shifts to other characters. Um, We get this kind of like oblique, I want to say it's not quite Peyton Place. It's not quite, it's not full on about um, gossip and scandals. Okay. But it is structured in that like small neighborhood. People know each other's business. People are taking note of what other people are doing sort mm-hmm. of vibe. So we get this, you know, little snapshot of a woman named Marie Sylvia who runs this restaurant and she has a cat named Duplessis or Duplessis. And he he's apparently named after uh, a nationalist Quebec premier. <laughs> Um, who was very, uh, he was very much on the separatist side. He was opposed to fighting in World War II. Um, and this cat who we get multiple POV chapters from, uh, does fight a dog named after another former premier of Quebec. Is this symbolism? You know, (laughs) it feels like it's doing a symbolism to me. It feels like it's doing a symbolism but I don't know what the symbolism is because I I think we're supposed to like the cat. A lot. Some of the the Goodreads reviews I saw did mention liking this cat specifically. So now the cat kind of rules because you're introduced to him having a dream. Um, his dream was filled with biting and screaming. Vague images, just precise enough to excite him, appeared in his mind, and all his muscles tensed, allowing him to pants to pounce on his fantasies. And you're like, yeah, okay. And then a few lines later, you're like, oh, he, this is a cat talking. That's cool. Uh, mm-hmm. And later, you learn that the cat loves the little boy of the main family, Marcel. He's like three or four, and the cat always remarks about how the boy smells like pee. And when the cat gets in this like potentially fatal fight with this dog 
and he like tries to crawl under their balcony hoping that someone will notice him the cat says if the little boy that smells of dried peepee comes by my life my love my heart's delight at least i'll see him before i die (laughs) okay i do love this cat i again i don't know what the symbolism means because one of the big backdrops of the novel is 1942 there was recently a vote in canada about whether or not to proceed with a full-on conscription effort to send troops into world war ii yeah prior to this you know some bill passing you could volunteer to go um, mm-hmm. And then there was something that passed that created what they called zombies, which were. Yeah. Did you read about that stuff? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were, I mean, there were like conscription crises surrounding Quebec's participation in both yeah. world wars. Yeah. Like Britain was in them, so Canada was like, "Well, I guess we gotta go help them because, yep, <laughs> because because of well, I don't know countries. Yep, it's weird and." Quebec was like, we don't wanna. Mm-hmm. And it was, I think my understanding is that it was like much worse. It, like the, the rioting and the and the pushback to it was was worse for the first world war, even sure. than for the second world sure. war. But and there are all kinds of like class and like cultural distinctions between the people who volunteered and the people who were conscripted, like with the people who volunteered being more likely to be like of Anglo background yes. and the people who didn't want to go being more French. And I think that's where the zombie thing comes from, right? It, is like what, generally the zombies were not, were the people who didn't volunteer. They did not volunteer. And the initial form of conscription for world war two was that you could be conscripted into domestic military service, which meant that you wouldn't get sent overseas, but you still had to help with the war effort and mm-hmm. that's why they were called zombies because they were kind of like shambling into the war. It was very bizarre. Okay. And okay. then after... it seems, seems maybe like one side came up with the zombie language. Yeah. And then after there was another bill that passed that this vote happened, Quebec was the only province that voted no against moving forward with a like full conscription effort. And then some of the zombies did end up getting sent overseas. Um the reason that, that is a backdrop to this book, aside from whatever symbolism is wrapped up in this cat and dog that I don't understand, uh, <laughs> is multi- it's not just one woman in this town is pregnant. I believe by the end of the book, we are introduced to seven women who are currently pregnant. Um, six of them are in their 20s. One of them, the fat woman, is in her 40s. And she's I, I'm going to keep calling her that because that is what the book calls her. She's not named um, at all. And the I, I want to get into how the book handles weight and disability a little bit later. But the the backdrop is that one of the things you could do to get out of going to war was to have a big family and have to stay home and provide for it. Okay. So there are multiple characters in this book. Just tra- trading one war for another. Yes. Like, you, know, hey, you know what I mean? God. You know what I mean? God, hey. Um, Rodney Dangerfield just showed up on the podcast. Hey. Hey. <laughs> um, and so, you know, at one point, the two brothers in the main family, uh, Gabriel and Edward, are like fighting. They're, you know, kind of insulting each other. And Edward like lays Gabriel out. He's like, oh, well, at least like I didn't get my wife pregnant, so I didn't have to serve in the army. <laughs> and, you know, that was in a retort to Gabriel saying that Edward was like faking being flat footed or something so that he mm-hmm. didn't have to serve. And there's a later chapter where Gabriel is drunk at a bar, espousing a lot of uh, anti-interventionist sentiment, kind of like, well, France, France abandoned us over here. We don't like England I- either. I'm not I'm not a fascist, but like it's really <laughs> it's some good like he gets his butt handed to him by other people at the bar mm-hmm. um, because he doesn't really have a good answer for it. He's just wrapped up in this particular political sentiment. So I don't, knowing that Tremblay himself is, or and was at least, like really pro-separatist, I don't know where the book comes down on them participating in World War II. What's interesting to read it now with kind of the like, I don't know how you feel, like, yeah, they probably should have gotten involved 
involved and they did and it was mm-hmm. a, it, there was a just cause to that conflict even as we've discussed on other episodes that like people mm-hmm. you know Dresden is a really and the atomic bomb are some hor- heinous things that the West. Yeah, I think did, we can you know. we can agree that the firebombing of Dresden and the atomic bomb are bad. Yeah, we could say I, that I, those I are hope. bad, yeah. even if they were tools to fight Nazis. You know, mm-hmm. um, so it's interesting reading this particular lens on should we or shouldn't we be in this war. It's not a lens that I've uh, encountered before because I don't read a lot of Canadian literature from this era. So thanks for this podcast, everybody. I mean, I wonder if that, to the extent that that debate feels a little like not, I don't even know if debate is the word to the extent that it doesn't feel like Tremblay has anything like like a personal strong personal viewpoint on it I mean it is a little bit before his time yes. so I, I, yeah. like maybe he's he's probably looking at it through the lens of like how he feels about Quebec without really I don't know feeling as like feeling the need to express whether it was right or wrong to get into a war that has been over for 30 years. I think you're probably very right about that. It it also becomes in the context of a novel that is really about working class people living either in poverty or kind of just above poverty many of them. Um it is about the motivations and the justifications that they use to make choices about their families. Like so for the for some of these characters um, and for this neighborhood, one set of choices is this like, well, if I have a baby, I don't have to participate in the war and that will have mm-hmm. all sorts of other ramifications for my life. Um, some of the characters I'm not really going to talk about at all, but you get little snippets of a couple of the families where it's like, you know, a, a family where the woman is actually the one who is employed uh, for whatever reason, her husband said, let's have a baby. She obliged. And now she's like, you know, wondering what's going to happen when she stops working and he has to go to work. There's, you know, marriages that the marriage is probably a good one, but they don't know what's going to happen when the baby comes. And will they end up like receding from their extended family as they focus in on each other? And if that's a good thing or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like the political backdrop is just something that I think to your point is probably just more of what Tremblay is steeped in as a person who grew up in this area, as opposed to mm-hmm. I'm going to sit down and write a book about Vichy Quebec or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry. I want to bop between a few other characters. We do meet um, Beatrice and Mercedes or uh, Mercedes Benz and Betty Bird, as they refer to themselves at least once. <laughs> they are a pair of working gals. And by working mm-hmm. gals, I mean they're sex workers who are good mm-hmm. friends and maybe lovers. It's unclear. Mm-hmm. And they provide just another... I, I, it is my understanding that Tremblay includes a lot of sex workers in his plays and other material. Um, he's interested in that point of view. Their interaction with soldiers is purely transactional as opposed to like having a personal investment in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get out of the traditional family structure by hanging out with these women. Um, there's a so they go they tell the story of how these two women met, which is like going on they're on a streetcar and they recognize each other from living in the same building. And I think Mercedes goes up to. Beatrice and it's like hey are you happy with your life do you want to come join me in the work that I do where you can make more money (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, but there's this they watch a bunch of housewives on that streetcar just woof some anti-semitism cool was pretty cool and that is I think great some of the Duplessis stuff actually he had he was wrapped. Some of the we should not be in World War II coming from that party in Quebec at the time was certainly motivated by anti Semitism in the same way that anti interventionism in the United States was motivated by it at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get these little like snippets of the more disgusting elements of the society. Mm-hmm. And then finally, we are introduced to the main family, which I don't know, Andrew, what. 
what do you what types of characters do you think are going to be in this big raucous family? They all live together. There's not enough bedrooms. People are sleeping in, you know, living rooms. What kind of based on like stories and movies you're familiar with, what types of characters do you think are here? I feel like you got to have like a like an eccentric aunt or uncle character. I don't know. Maybe one of them's drunk all the time. Mm. Uh I don't know. Do you, like what kind of vices are represented? I guess like you, you've got to have people who have vices, and that's their main character trait, <laughs> right? Like they're drunk or they're gamblers or a little bit. Something. Sure, yeah. yeah. So um, Edward, who is the uh, unmarried son of the matron uh, or matriarch Victoire, um, Edward is probably gay. I don't think it is named explicitly in the book, but it is very heavily implied. And mm-hmm. uh, he is—he goes out and drinks a lot. He parties cool. a bunch. He Fun. is um, kind of estranged from some of the members of the family. He has a tempestuous relationship with his mom, Victoire, and their journey together by the end of the book. He goes on a walk with her at the end of the book. And mm-hmm. they, you know, reach a new understanding in their relationship. Like that's that, fun. It is that's nice. nice. That's um, nice for them. <laughs> Gabriel, who is the guy I talked about earlier, who gets into all the political conversations, he is also he's a real drinker. He's the real drinker of the book. He is um he's married this woman, um, the unnamed woman who's gonna have a baby, and they already have two kids. She has asked him for a third. He has said let's go for it they lost one earlier and she also wants them to move out and live on their own and the book does a pretty good job of of giving voice to both of their concerns about like are we just going to be trapped in this house with all these other people can we not like can you not get another job can we find a way to get out of this situation and he's like well if we move out we're not going to have enough resources we're not going to have money enough to like actually live even in the way that we're living now which is somewhat comfortable even if it's shared with a lot more people um and his like i don't know they do love each other um they love each other a lot in a way that annoys some other people in the house yeah nice and and is resented and is resented by other people in the house um that they do have that connection um, mm-hmm. But he does also kind of seem like a simpering wimp and is portrayed mm-hmm. as such on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, the matriarch who I mentioned, who's sort of like the kooky aunt, but she, actually she's just a really old lady who would love to be useful again. There's a passage where Richard, who's one of the younger boys, he's 11. I believe he is one of Gabriel. Uh, he's the son of Gabriel and uh, the fat woman. He watches he sleeps in the same room as victoire um if she wanted to do anything in the house her daughter-in-law the fat woman or her daughter albertine very attentively would anticipate her intentions you just rest you've done enough work in your life sit down mama your leg the old woman would lay down the dishcloth or the wooden spoon swallowing so she wouldn't explode and that kind of i don't know that's a that's a character portrait i am familiar with but it was very it was pretty specific to this character in a way that i found really effective of that like you know one of the reasons that folks get there's the like the stereotype of the crotchety older person i think is because as they get older folks try to take responsibility away from them in a way that's meant to be helpful but actually feels like coddling yeah maybe i don't know do you, when you get old do you want to actually be helpful or do you just want to like sit on a boat and relax you want to sit in your chair all day who am i who am i being helpful to in what context am i probably trying to be your child and am i actually am i actually helpful mm. or am i just getting in the <laughs> see, way uh-oh <laughs> see this, you got too many there's too many too many variables <laughs> well victoire thinks she can be helpful and part of her journey in the book is becoming helpful uh um, i would like to not die in a in a shootout related to water or other yes the water uh, wars that we resources that we have alluded to correct Mm -hmm. um i would Mm -hmm. like to be useful in the water wars how about that that yeah when i'm older um i mentioned albertine she would be 
the matriarch of this family, if not for Victoire, and if not for the energy that the family has to spend on uh, the fat woman who is pregnant. She is her. She married into the family. That guy is off in the war, even though he's a little bit older, and people are like, why would you go do that? And she's just kind of mean to everybody. Like, she just, <laughs> she seems to resent the joy the what joy other people can find in their own lives and takes it out on everyone mm-hmm. and even though she's also doing a lot of caregiving and and, and work for people and caregiving is, is a huge like action theme throughout this book are you ready andrew for your son when he's a little older to like tell you to change your behavior are you ready for that and it, and for him to be right. I'm thinking specifically of a moment. And I don't know if I've ever done this to a parent. I don't know if I've ever done this personally. But I know that these moments happen. Mm-hmm. How You made a face. Are you ready for this? I mean, no. But I have a lot of time to get ready for it. Okay. So think <laughs> about this moment here. So mm-hmm. Albertine, um, her daughter, Therese or Therese. There's a lot of accents over the E's, and I don't know what they all mean. Why don't we um, just say Therese? Why Therese? Are we not? Yeah. And uh, her younger... Uh, Therese is 11. I think Marcel is three or four. And Albertine flies into these rages a lot and, and makes everybody uncomfortable. And just before the events of the book, the night before... Therese, wild with fear, but with her mind made up, she had come right out and asked her mother to stop shouting all the time when Marcel was around. And just like really makes a big plea for her mom to not be as mean a jerk to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Albertine throughout the book is like wrestling with, wow, my daughter owned me and I should probably change but I'm having a hard time because there's so much in the world that makes me angry and upset. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know if, if Henry's ever going to own you that way. Oh, I'm sure I'll be owned. Kids are burning <laughs> their parents to the ground all the time. <laughs> Intentionally and not. I'm sure it's going to happen. Sure. I'm just going to have to live, live with that. Um, I'll be, I'm, I'm, I'll be there for you when it happens, Andrew. Thank you. Unless unless you think I'm wrong. Well, no. Okay, so let's game this out. Maybe you my are fr- wrong. My, f- my friend and my son have unionized. <laughs> I will be there to tell you that Henry has a point, but I will also be there to tell you that it, it sucks to get owned by your son. <laughs> like that sure. feel, I can see that that would feel bad. I appreciate No that. probs. Um, oh. And the other main characters that I have not mentioned real quick... Uh, are the two sons of the fat woman and Gabriel Richard, who's 11. He's a scared boy. He's a scared, sad boy mm-hmm. um, who later in the book comes to a, a, a slightly embarrassing, but per, but otherwise private sexual awakening um, and has to wrestle with just like, he's changing the world's changing I don't know if I am capable of handling change. Sure. Um, And then Philippe, who I initially thought sucked because when they go to the park, he spends like a few pages, like cruelly impersonating a kid from his class who has a disability. And then a few pages later, you get the like inside his head, uh, his anxiety about school and how he's really bad at it. And how when he comes home from school, sometimes he just likes to like take a nap with Marcel. uh, And he says it was his way of reassuring himself of forgetting the grammar he couldn't make head nor tail of the arithmetic he always managed to understand, but only after everybody else, the religion he couldn't care less about the geography in which he inevitably got lost. Philippe was a mediocre student. He knew it. He'd even come to term with it in a way. I'm a dumbbell, but I don't care when I'm old enough to quit school. I'll go and work with Papa. And Mm -hmm. Philippe bears out to be a sweeter boy than you think. Um, But it's his own like terrible low self-esteem that brings him to cruelty throughout the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, the, the, you know, what happens in this book? They get up. It sounds like it's a bunch of, a bunch of stuff that happens. Well, 
Not a lot. The, so M- Emily yeah, on me. Goodreads, read, this isn't a three-star Goodreads review. It's a five-star Goodreads review. Mm. And I don't have any other ones, so I'm not going to sing the song. Okay. And apologies to everybody at home. Uh, but she says, there's no plot to speak of. It's just characterization, setting, ideas, and set pieces, and personal mythology made national. Ooh, I like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, there isn't a plot to speak of. It's a, it's Saturday. That's the plot. It's, there's not there's not a plot, but what's it what's it saying? You know, you don't have to have a plot to say something. Whoa. Yeah. Um embroider that on a pillow, why don't you? <laughs> um I think it's actually saying well, going back to what you said earlier, like I don't think it is taking a very it's not like this is a book about one thing. It's not like this is my take on the Quebec intervention question. It is a book about working class people being complicated, working class people finding the finding change and finding their own ability to change. Um, so like I said at the end of the book, the two biggest like things that happen to these people is mm-hmm. Victoire goes on a walk with Edward. And she has not left their house for two years to the point where people thought in town thought she was dead, maybe. Oh, no. And she puts on an ugly hat that Edward gave her as a gift. And she's like, you're going to go on a walk with me and we're going to walk around town. Mm-hmm. And it ends with her taking him in, into the spot in the park where she conceived him. Where okay. <laughs> which, and he like has this moment where he's like, wow, my mom actually never talked about sex with me at all this is strange but like they come to this understanding i think the last thing that she says to him directly is like we're all that we have for each other and it's like a very that is the exact opposite of their relationship at the beginning of the book the Mm -hmm. the other big thing that happens is that um to a to a single character is that the fat woman who spends the entire book in her chair in her room like cut off from the rest of the family she likes to read she dreams of traveling but the last two or three months of her pregnancy have made it very difficult for her to even move um and so there's scenes where she's getting washed by albertine and she is trying to connect with people but they don't really know how to connect with her and it ends with them helping her out onto the balcony and then her inviting the other six pregnant women from the neighborhood, all of whom throughout this book have been pretty siloed from one another. She invites them up onto the balcony to talk and to like talk about what's going to happen when they have a kid. Mm -hmm. So I think there is also, I know that the, the revolution tranquille was about like secularization and taking some education away from, as you said, both like Anglo-Canadian culture and also from like the Roman Catholic Church. And there's a couple passages that are like directly condemning the church for not telling women about how their bodies work kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the end of the book is this like, hey, all of us, Imagine at the end of an episode of Hey Arnold where everyone in the building gets together for one meal. I was wondering how long it was going to be before somebody brought up Hey Arnold in the context of a big house that has a lot of kooky characters living in it. And I had <laughs> determined not to be the one who did it. So I'm glad that you did it. Yeah, they, they are more explicitly related than the characters in Hey Arnold. But it does have that vibe at the end where like they're leaving the park at the end of the day. A bunch of like small but you know, emotionally impactful things have happened to different characters and they all walk home from the park at the same time. And now the, you know, Betty Bird and Mercedes Benz are somehow invited to dinner. No one knows what to do with them. And then the other kind of tertiary characters who are pregnant that we've met along the way, they hear this raucous party happening. They are invited into it. And there is, a, a stronger community than there was at the beginning of the book that was sure. you know kind of people opening up to each other but i i think mm-hmm. what stands out to me about the book is a lot of the what what was in that review it wasn't um they're not quite set pieces but just like strong character moments and little turns of phrase or revelations that individual characters have about 
the world that they're in. Okay. Um, so like, you know, one of the women who married for security and doesn't really care for her husband, but they're going to have this baby now says as she's walking through the town, the war had kidnapped all the males who were even in remotely good health, tied them up, disguised them, indoctrinated them, shift them off to the other side of the big water and sent them back home in pieces or unhinged. It had left the woman, the women, only their priests who certainly took advantage of the fact their little boys who were too young to offer their flesh, their fathers who told them about the atrocities of the other war to spur them on. And sometimes their husbands, if they were disabled or prolific for fathers of large families, weren't required to go to war, yada, yada, yada. Um, and that is something that I have been interested in when I've read other books, particularly from a non-American perspective, like w- the European perspective, World War One, where there's just a generation of men just wiped out and like what that did to families. Um, that's just something I've, I've, that always strikes me when I read books from this era. Um, sure. But yeah, and I mentioned earlier in this, I'll close out on this, I guess, Andrew, is that okay. I don't know if you saw, if you read any comments or anything that talked about how the fat woman is portrayed in the book. Um, I didn't really encounter anything, no. And I think it might be because there are so many other characters that reviews were focused on just like the whole picture rather than like the title character. Sure, but. yes. And, th- and that is truly how the book functions. It is not about her explicitly, but... Yeah, weight is a thing in this book, and it, it is a is a thing that many characters wrestle with, um, and being healthy or feeling healthy, and it is um, the book is certainly not afraid to show you people who are um, less than let's say less than charitable about someone who is overweight and yeah, their own sure. anxieties about it. I think it mm-hmm. is also run through a lens of. Um, people of lesser means on the, in this neighborhood who then have opinions about folks who, who eat a lot when there's not a lot to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, but also well, that, and that it's that itself being kind of a, I don't know, sometimes a misconception about how. Yeah, exactly. Fat works. No, no, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Um, and it, it is also wrapped up in the women who are pregnant and their bodies are changing. And some of them, understand it better than others and so the relationship to your body over time um is certainly a theme of the book a character i haven't really talked about um who is one of the ants she's an aunt of one of the i think of mercedes no no no, of, of beatrice she I think she was a sex worker, or at least she was using sex to blackmail politicians. She had a very successful career having sex with politicians earlier in her life. <laughs> and she, uh, due to illness, lost half of her leg, you know, a few okay. years before the events of this book. And sure. so now she is someone who needs live-in care. She cannot lead the type of life that she was leading. And then mm-hmm. over the course of the book, some of that illness returns and I don't know, it's just that feels like it's operating in parallel to to some of the passages about the fat woman being confined to her room and feeling cut off from people and the scenes in which she does have connection with other characters. Um, so I don't know, you know, I don't know how this stuff will strike all readers, but I certainly found it um, kind of effectively rolled together as a series of like, well, how do we care for people and how do we, uh, you know, accept people? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it was interesting. Sure. Yeah. Um, but at the end of it, I think it is a it is a it is a good slice of life community story that I do think lacks that. Um, if you're if you're interested in those kind of small town stories that have the Peyton Place like. Uh, or even I guess some Stephen King books do this where it's like, can you believe this person's doing that? And this blah, 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 and all these secrets will out. Like this is and not then a they book get killed by a monster. Yeah, this is not a book where secrets will out. This is a book where sometimes people get to confess their secrets to someone who means something to them, and that's like cool and nice. Sure. And okay. sweet. Um I I did not come away from this book like, man, I gotta go to Canada. But I've ever been to Canada and enjoyed it. So maybe I'll just... The book won't cause that, but my own... Have you ever been to Canada? I've never been to Canada. Hmm. Let's go to Canada. Okay. 
uh, I'll pick you up. No, let's wait until let's, everybody's vaccinated. Let's wait. And go. Uh, yes. Um, I've been to Toronto. Yeah. I haven't been anywhere up there. Anyway, but I am an expert on Quebec now, and I'm sure we didn't get anything wrong. Nope. And if any Canadians out there are just kind of politely fuming at our <laughs> misrepresentation of you and your culture, I apologize. Yeah. And we're just going to keep learning things about our northern neighbors until we've figured it all out. I'll say this. That if if our stumbling has, pro- has con- conveyed anything to you, I hope it is that I came away from this book way more interested in Canadian history than I was coming in. And that is a that is a plus in my column. The book did some good work there, so mm-hmm. I'm intrigued to be corrected. Let's say, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Andrew, thanks for letting me tell you about this book. Thanks for telling me about it. No problem. Happy. Thanks to for do letting it. me sit here and listen while you talk to me about it. Yeah, that's very kind of both of us, yeah. actually. Mm-hmm. Um, folks yeah, who want to tell us their Canada <laughs> stories can send us an email at overduepod at gmail Hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at overduepod. Uh, thanks to Bronwyn, Seth, Minam, Andrea, Megan, Ingrid, Liam, Carmen, and more for reaching out in the past week. Thanks to Nick Larangis, who composed our theme song. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there we have links to the books that we have read and are going to read. Click them, and you can buy them from bookshop.org, which gives us a small cut, gives your local independent bookseller a small cut, and gets you a book. We have also got links to Apple Podcasts, Google, our RSS feed, Facebook, Twitter, all the other stuff Craig mentioned, our Patreon project. That's patreon.com slash OverduePod. Um, if you subscribe there, you can get new new bonus episodes early and you also get can get early access to our long read projects um our current long read project that is about to begin jagged little mill is where we're going to read don quixote don quixote don quixote don quixote don coyote oh don quixote uh a few chapters at a time yeah and we're gonna have fun yeah i think uh check our feeds later this week we'll post our february schedule at some point february and yeah that's it i don't know all right everybody thank you for listening to us and until we talk to you again next time try to be happy was a headgum podcast.